and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. Last weekend, at our 38th annual gala, we announced the winners of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. If you haven't had a chance to check out the winners, you'll definitely want to do that. The full list of the winners is available on our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. Now, my guest for today's episode was at the gala on Saturday, and her book is the winner of the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Here she is to introduce herself. My name is Harsha Walia. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Uh, I live on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations who continue to assert their sovereignty and jurisdiction on these lands. And I am an organizer in social movements and an author, uh, most recently of Border and Rule by Fernwood Publishing. Um, and I have worked for the past uh, 20 or so years in the anti-violence sector, specifically working around uh, racial gendered violence. And I organize an anti-racist migrant justice feminist movement. In my conversation with Harsha, we talk about language and how the language we use has reinforced myths and narratives we have about immigration and borders. We also talk about what inspires her in the work she does. Here's my conversation with Harsha Walia. So my my first question for you is uh, entirely unrelated to your book, but it sometimes awesome. ends up being sometimes <laughs> it ends up being related. It, it always kind of works out somehow. Um, but my question is, if you could only read one book or watch one oh, TV show for the no. rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh my gosh, I it is so. Th- thoroughly embarrassing that I can't even admit to it but I will just say that the first manuscript that I wrote was uh, as a ghostwriter for a harlequin romance novelist (laughs) (laughs) so that gives you a window into uh, what I might be reading if I only had one book to read (laughs) I love that (laughs) <laughs> As someone who binge watches like rom rom coms, even the very worst ones, I I love that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I tried so hard to be a ghostwriter; it didn't work for trashy romance. That's amazing. Okay, now that we've gotten our our Harlequin romance uh, related question out of the way, <laughs> we will start talking about border and rule. And uh, as I was doing some research, I saw that this is your. The third book you've written where you've explored uh, topics of migration and immigration and borders. And I wondered what drew you to those subjects, uh, both in the work you do as an author, but also as an activist as well. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's my it's my second book. So I have uh, written about borders extensively, but uh, two books only. And for me, it uh, really is, you know, part of my personal lived experience as someone, both my family and myself have been impacted by borders for generations in terms of the violence of borders, the separation of borders, uh, detention, deportation, migrant work, and so much more. Uh, I try to steer away from the autobiographical in my books for many reasons. Um, But of course, it's, it's part of it. 
uh, in terms of uh, how I understand the world and how I've made sense of my own life. And uh, in terms of uh, organizing, for me, I, I came to organizing against borders really in the moment of 9-11, which, you know, it's been two decades, which is unbelievable that there are people who did not know a world prior to 9-11. Um, but for me, I was very much politicized in that moment of, uh, you know, this never ending war on terror, which has seen just a, a rapid global expansion of militarism you know, clamping down on people's rights through detention and incarceration, um, you know, CIA black hole sites across the planet. And, you know, one of the effects of the war on terror was, you know, as the war on terror kind of had this global dimension, the way in which it boomeranged at home that I saw all around me as someone who was an immigrant to North America was this war on immigrants, right? So we saw the ways in which People were declared on no evidence um, and criminalized and illegalized and held indefinitely on spurious anti-terror charges. Immigration became more restricted and conflated with terrorism. And so, you know, this kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric is not new, but it kind of saw a new incarnation. So for me, um, fighting the kind of global war on terror and all of the scapegoating of it and the racism and white supremacy of it kind of at home. Uh, where I was living took on the form of fighting for migrant rights and, and and fighting for migrant justice, but to do so in a way that understood the global dimensions of it. You know, like when people come to the border and suddenly become immigrants, we have to ask the question why that is. Why do people become displaced? Why are people on the move? Why are people dying on borders? And this is not just a question of like domestic immigration policy, but it really is a question of global asymmetries of power. Um, so for me, it was, you know, also a way to look at the and analyze and confront global injustice by acting locally. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about border specifically, because I think, you know, most of us, when we hear that word, we think of those like imaginary lines that divide countries. But as we get into the book as a reader, we really see that this idea of borders and how you interpret borders is so much bigger and so much uh, beyond just the borders we cross when we go into the United States, for example. Yeah, um, part of what I was trying to do with the book was exactly that, you know, it was like we think of borders as um, just these lines on a map um, that demark countries kind of territorial sovereignty, if you will. But what I was hoping to do with the book was to expand our understanding of borders and to really interrogate bordering regimes instead, right, which is to say that borders don't just operate as lines on the map. In fact, they follow people um, everywhere and, of course, follow people differentially, right? Some people on this planet have um, un unfettered access to the world. Like, literally, you know, if you are uh, from one of the wealthy countries, you experience passport-free access to the world um, like never before. You can get on a plane and literally fly across the planet like you have never before, and at the same time, we're in the midst of what we know as a migration crisis, where millions of people, overwhelmingly racialized poor, who are the world's majority, do not have that access. Um, they face danger and precarity. So there is nothing um, natural about the violence of borders, right? It is deliberately selective that is intended to be porous for some people. Um, we also know borders are constantly ignored when, you know, rich countries decide to mine or pollute or bomb other countries and other countries' borders are, are constantly ignored. So borders 
uh, are not are not fixed. They're porous, um, depending on who you are, and they follow you depending on who you are. You know, so you might be someone um, who does cross a border but are living in Canada without full immigration status. You might be a migrant worker who's working in the farms and fields, uh, producing our food and, you know, working in extremely dangerous working conditions and living under curfews and basically, you know, living under what many um, migrant workers call an enduring system of slavery. Um, or you might be a caregiver who's living in the home of an employer, taking care of children, not allowed to leave the home. Or you might be an undocumented person where you cannot access social housing or healthcare without fear of deportation. So the border follows you even after you've kind of crossed the border, you know? Um, so bordering regimes are the ways in which borders and the system of borders uh, follow people and are meant to make certain people immobilized and precarious for, you know, forever, right? And right now we're also living in a time of global vaccine apartheid, where it is absolutely horrendous that the world's majority, simply because of where they live, do not have access to life-saving vaccines, while many of us now are in our, you know, second booster. And many people have not received their first shot. And so one of the ways in which borders maintain this kind of global system of inequality and lack of access and impoverishment um, is to basically decide and say that based on where you are born will determine literally um, how you live under what conditions and also often for how long. And so borders maintain the system of mass global apartheid. Yeah. Something I'm, I'm always interested in, uh, and it must be the writer in me, but it, it's that examination of language. And even as you've been t mm. uh, talking about um what borders are and using like in in the book you talk about using words like crisis or threat depending on mm. who who the um immigrants or the migrants are and even when we hear that word border we think of something very specific and mm. and i wondered if you could talk about the words we use to talk about um these issues of immigration and globalization and um border violence and how the language we use changes mm. how we approach them and how Maybe if we start to look at the language we're using, we can start to look at dismantling the systems as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, languages, as you said, it's so important. It really it, it constructs our ideas of, of reality and, you know, it has the, the power of reframing uh, how we understand reality, too. And maybe I can I'll, I'll offer a few examples that I think, you know, really underscore how deep seated um, languages when it comes to thinking about immigration, you know, one is just even the language of immigrant, you know, whenever we think of immigrant, um, and specifically in the settler colonial context of, you know, say Canada, or the US where we reside, you know, immigrant is, is often conjures up imagery of racialized people. You know, if I, when I go and do campus talks, I ask people to, you know, close their eyes and think of immigrant. And most people, um, have a racially coded, imagination uh, or, you know, image of who they're thinking of, you know, and that says a lot, you know, because of course it means that we completely obscure the reality of settler colonialism, right? So somehow whiteness uh, and white Europeans become naturalized as non-immigrants in this context when of course, in fact, there's a, an ongoing violent reality of settler colonialism that was an invasion. And then, of course, it's also very much continuously conflates racialized people as immigrants, as outsiders, you know, irrespective of how long racialized people have lived on these lands. 
you know, they and we are constantly considered kind of hyphenated outsiders, uh, you know, the kind of always hyphenated Canadian. And importantly, you know, very few people know this, but until recently in BC, the province where we reside, um, until recently, the largest number of people who were considered overstays, so which is to say, quote unquote, illegally living or working in BC, uh, were were white Europeans and white Australians and white Americans. So people who had overstayed their visitor visas or people who were working while on a visitor visa, so not authorized to work, or people who had over, who were working beyond their work permits. You know, but we never think of white people as so-called illegal immigrants in BC, but that was actually factually a reality. And in the United States, the nationality of um, the largest nationalities of overstays is actually Canadians in the United States. Right. So, again, we see how racially coded these kinds of words are. And, you know, then kind of taking that more broadly, when we think of uh, migrant crisis or border crisis or, you know, again, all this all this language of crisis around the borders, oftentimes the language of crisis is used to suggest that somehow the border is in crisis. Right. When, in fact, the border is like it's in, it's not a it's not a living being, but we somehow give it this personhood of like the border is being invaded, you know, as if so a border can be invaded. It's like it's it's a geography that kind of and the state becomes the victim, right? Like the state is being invaded by migrants. And that is really a dangerous turn of language because migrants who are actually in crisis, who are actually dying at the border, who are actually fleeing for their lives, um, who are desperate to move are the ones in crisis, but somehow they become the perpetrators of violence against an inanimate border. And, you know, so that that language becomes important. And we see similar language even in the very passive language of talking about border deaths. You know, when we talk about um, migrants and refugees dying at the border, it's often very passive, you know, border deaths as if though it's not a deliberate state killing. Oftentimes there's a lot of victim blaming that really mirrors uh, rape culture language, you know, like victim blaming. Why did they get on a dinghy boat? Why did those parents put their children on a boat knowing how dangerous it was when in fact people are forced to take more and more desperate routes, you know, not because of something inherent to them, but because it has become more dangerous depending on who you are to cross a border, right? Because uh, you are, you're facing more danger when you are crossing, but the, the kind of victim blaming of, you know, why did they cross the desert in, in the scorching heat? Why did they bring their children along with them is all deeply victim blaming responses that removes um, the responsibility from state policies that create dangerous migration and instead places the blame and the responsibility on migrants themselves for deciding to move. And so these are all different ways in which we can see language being asserted in such a way as to make migrants the cause of the problem rather than state policies that are intended to maintain power as the actual problem. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you start to think of the language and the words we use, you can really see how it's used to reinforce the narratives and myths that we have about immigration and about how this, you know, they protect the systems that we live in and mm. live under. And mm-hmm. and in the book, you really you really dismantle some of these myths we're told um, about capitalism and about imperialism. And so many of these things are the causes of immigration and migration that you explore in the book. But 
but what do you think needs to be done so that we can continue to dismantle those myths and those narratives that are protecting a broken system? Yeah. And I, you know, I think one of the things is, as you put it, you know, it's to realize that this is the system we're forced to live under. It's not inevitable. Um, I think, you know, for me, that's one of the things that I hope comes across in the book is um, although the, it is a, a, a kind of incredibly dense book that, highlights, you know, injustices around the world with respect to borders, whether it's border killings, whether it's, you know, the condition of precarious work that migrants are forced into, whether it's detention centers, you know, all of that, or, you know, the reasons why people are even forced to flee from their homes in the first place. The goal for me is not just to highlight injustice, but to, in some ways, you know, for me, I think highlighting the ways in which all these different systems are connected can actually be a source of liberatory power, you know, because sometimes when you just focus on one symptom and you try to fight it, it can be very demobilizing to realize like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to fight. Um, so for me, I actually find that it's kind of a, a freeing analytic, if you will, to realize that actually so much of the system is connected. And if we fight against one part of it, then we're actually kind of unthreading this tangle and this mess that, you know, people in power have created, you know? So if I'm fighting against gentrification, if I'm fighting against prison expansion, if I'm fighting policing, if I'm fighting for migrant justice, if I'm fighting against drone warfare, these are all kind of the same thing, right? They're all manifestations of each other. And so, you know, the ways in which we break apart these myths, I think one is to realize that migrant justice isn't just kind of a side issue, you know, it's connected to global justice issues in general. It's, con it's connected to abolition movements in general. Because the border, uh, you know, Angela Angela Davis and Gina Dent wrote that the prison is a border, you know, so we start to see prison, police, um, border, the military, these are all interconnected systems. And if we're fighting for global justice, you know, if we're fighting for, uh, for fair trade, if we're fighting against capitalist exploitation, if we're fighting against, Can against Canadian mining or against Canadians arms trade, that is part of fighting for migrant justice because we're making sure people are not being forcibly displaced from their homes. So these are all um, connected. So part of how we fight is that, you know, anytime we're fighting for systemic injustice, in my view, uh, or fighting for systemic justice, we are actually fighting in solidarity with migrant rights movements. And I think the other thing is, uh, you know, part of how we deal with this broken system is to realize that it's not broken. It's intended to be this way, right? It's intended to maintain power uh, it's intended to maintain a system of white supremacy, of cis-heteropatriarchy, of ableism, of capitalism, of colonialism, of so much of caste oppression and so much more. And so we have to actively be fighting not just to kind of tweak the system, but to dismantle it, right? And to ensure that we are actually fighting for safety for all people. And again, you know, one of the key ways in a global sense that we live and continue to live in such a stratified world is because of borders, right? It is the border that decides that the global North has so much more wealth than the global South. It is the border that decides, you know, who's going to get paid what wages. It is a border that decides who's going to have access to what services that are life-saving. And so we have to absolutely fight for a world in no border that has no borders. Um, as utopic as it may seem, that really is a life-affirming path, you know, anything short of that will continue to uphold injustice for many people around the world. So if we're committed to, you know, planetary justice at a global sense, like not just for me and my people, but for the world, 
um, then we absolutely have to live in, in a world without borders and fight to, to make that a reality. Yeah. A little bit related to my my last two questions, but I, I really appreciated how um you went into the history of so much of what's happening right now, because I think there tends to be like, you know, I've had conversations with people where it was everyone likes to blame Trump. But, mm. And as easy as that, it wouldn't it be nice if we could blame one person. But mm -hmm. um, there's obviously this has been happening for 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 centuries, for decades, um, with governments being involved, as you point out, the U.S. government being involved in, in Central American politics and um, Guantanamo. And I mean, this is something that is established and has long roots. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about like why, you know, when we don't talk about history, when we don't talk about these things, you know, what what happens when we're not connecting those threads back? And why mm. do we need to talk about history when we have these conversations? Yeah, I mean, that's a, such a good question. It's something that um, I had to, you know, do a lot of learning around too. Like, I'm not a historian. I got involved in movements very much influenced by the contemporary moment, as well as I mentioned with 9-11. So for me, looking back at history was so instructive in order to avoid this kind of myopic sense of, you know, that this is the responsibility of one individual, or even that this is just the responsibility of the far right or conservative policies, when in fact, when it comes to immigration, for example, um, it really has been bipartisan policy in Canada, in the US, in Australia, like I looked at so many different places on purpose in this book, um, in order to avoid the kind of methodological nationalism of like, oh, the US is worse, you know, or, or that kind of phenomenon, that one person is worse, or one place is worse, or one time period is worse. Um, in order to show that it really is a structure, you know, it's not about a person or a particular set of policies or even a particular, um, you know, one partisan ideology, but that it really uh, was intended in order to uphold colonialism and capitalism that border restrictions came to be. Um, I think history is also instructive because, especially when it comes to borders, we take borders to be so kind of natural without forgetting that, um, they really are an invention of colonialism and capitalism, you know, like borders have not existed in the way that they exist now. Um, some of the very first border controls on this side of the world were uh, enforced against Indigenous people and against enslaved Black people. Like there was a very particular purpose to borders to contain and control Indigenous and Black people um, around the world. Borders really were a method of indentureship. Uh, under the European empire to control labor, you know, so there's all of these, these, um, these continuities of violence um, that I think history is also instructive in, because oftentimes we see these issues as disconnected, you know, we see labor as separate from immigrant rights, or we'll see indigenous issues, um, or black liberation as separate from migrant justice issues. But looking at history reminds us that actually, these are all bound up in each other and that the border worked in particular ways to control and enact violence and genocide in particular ways against particular communities in ways that means that our liberation is bound up too. you know, our, these violences are bound up and therefore our liberation is bound up. Um, and so I think history is also instructive there so that we start to see patterns more so than focus just on individual policies. We start to understand the underlying logics. Um, of racial capitalism and racial citizenship. And so then we start to move ourselves to fighting those logics and not just, you know, individual policies. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of ask you a question that I ended up 
asking um, Joel back in last year when mm. uh, we talked about the new corporation, um, I ended up asking him if he was hopeful. And I know you've been working in activism and community organization for a long time. Um, and I'm not going to ask you if you're hopeful. I want to ask you <laughs> what what inspires you in the work that you do? I appreciate you not asking me that question because <laughs> I'm a Gemini, so you'll get a different answer on a different day. Um, but yeah, I think uh, what inspires me is really just in my 20 years, I have seen our consciousness move so much. You know, I w started organizing in a time where it was impossible to talk about immigration without needing to feed into like, oh, but, you know, was that person a good immigrant? You know, the idea of, of immigrants and refugees having to prove um, their or our worth or innocence or, you know, gratitude, uh, needing to prove kind of all the markers of a model minority, if you will. And, you know, I think that that has completely shifted in the past several decades as a result of organizing, as a result of people fighting. Um, and pushing the dial, you know, to really say, no, this is an issue that doesn't, isn't about assimilation. This isn't about assimilating into white supremacy. This isn't about, you know, immigration rights and immigrant rights at the expense of indigenous sovereignty, like that these are connected struggles, um, that these are fundamentally anti-colonial, anti-capitalist abolitionist struggles, right? That what we want is a complete transformation of the world that we live in. Um, where people are free to move and people are free to stay that, you know, that's what we're fighting for. So I'm so inspired at um, so many movements that are really fighting back against neoliberalism that are fighting against reform um, and that are showing the way towards, you know, what true liberation means. And for me, when I think about what it means to live in a world without borders and what inspires me is the many movements that are making home today, you know, like a world without borders is basically to remake our world where everybody has a home, where everybody feels at home, uh, where everybody is safe in their home, where everyone is safe at home in their bodies, you know, where the planet is a home for our, for all species, you know, that's really what it is. It's about making home and making safety. And so I am inspired um, by so many movements that, uh, are ultimately oriented towards safety, you know, and safety is a verb, not something that can be granted, but something that we make with each other in relation with each other and kinship with one another and to, to re-understand what it means to be human and in community. You know, years ago, there's a comrade from the native youth movement, Joaquin, who said, we need to learn how to be human again. And at the time it seemed so simple, but it has stuck with me for almost 20 years because there is something so profound about the fact that we need to learn how to be human again, you know, that that is what colonialism and capitalism and white supremacy and all forms of oppression uh, intend to beat out of us is just how to be human, how to be interdependent, how to be kin. Um, and so what I'm inspired by is, you know, all the ways in which we are building home and learning to be human again um, and knowing that that end goal may not be there yet, but that we are very much oriented towards that fight collectively. That was Harsha Walia. Her book, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism is the winner of the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Harsha was also part of an in-person reading at Massey Art Gallery in June, and the recording of that event can be found on our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. 
If you would like to find out even more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, including information about upcoming events and more, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Still to come on this season of Writing the Coast are conversations with Tara Boren, winner of the 2022 Borealis Prize, Susan McClellan, who co-wrote Boy from Buchenwald with Robbie Wiseman, Karen Dufick and Jordan Wilson, co-creators of Where the Power Is, and many more. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast. <laughs>